Listener Production. Is it time to try something different on mental health? And could magic mushrooms, or more formally known as psilocybin, be the solution for people who can't move forward with traditional treatments? Well, the Australian drug regulator, the TGA, says no, but this psychiatrist is saying yes. What essentially happens with these medicines is it can unlock those boxes that we've packed away. And we've all got boxes like that, but some of us have bigger boxes with more stuff in it. Very simple analogy there. That is Dr. Eli Kotler. And he explains in this briefing why he thinks psilocybin should be part of our range of mental health treatments. And he also explains how the treatment would actually work. Now, spoiler, it doesn't involve tripping balls in a paddock. First, today's headlines with Antoinette Latouf. It is Wednesday, the 23rd of March. Ukraine is accusing Russian forces of kidnapping children. Authorities say more than 2,300 children from the Russian-controlled territories of Luhansk and Donetsk, including the city of Mariupol in the east of Ukraine, have been illegally removed to Russia. So these deportations couldn't be independently verified. Meanwhile, the siege in Mariupol continues with Russian forces inside the city and two super powerful bombs rocked the city earlier today. And you might be hearing a lot about Mariupol, and uh, I guess it's important to flesh out why it's so important in this battle. Well, it's close to the Russian border, and it's also home to the largest trading port in the Azov Sea. So more than 200,000 people are still trapped in the city, where the situation's been described by Human Rights Watch as a freezing hellscape riddled with dead bodies and destroyed buildings. And meanwhile, in Russia, a court has sentenced Putin critic and opponent Alexei Navalny to nine years in prison, convicting him in fraud and contempt of court. Of course, we'll appeal against the verdict. As soon as we receive it, we'll immediately file complaints. And accordingly, we will have to familiarise ourselves with the transcript of the court session. Now, that's one of his legal representatives, Oleg Mikhailov, but she's now been detained. And, and you may remember that Navalny was poisoned uh, mm. with a Soviet-area nerve gun last year. I guess the price dissidents pay in Russia. Yeah, absolutely, including the people who are protesting the war on the streets who are being arrested and a Russian journalist we spoke to last week who can't even go back to her own country now because she's been calling the war a war. A warning from Australia's new space commander. Yesterday, the Defence Force announced the formation of an Australian Space Command. Its commander is Air Vice Marshal Catherine Roberts. And she says we're lagging behind the rest of the world when it comes to space defence. Yeah, she says that activities by China and Russia worry her and that our lack of capability at the moment is really concerning. And her concerns were echoed by a space law expert from ANU, Dr Cassandra Steer. It's highly likely we're going to see more and more interference with satellites and, and interference with objects in space. So this comes after Russia caused global shock last year when it destroyed one of its old satellites in an anti-satellite missile test. Yeah, it's interesting, this announcement. So we found out about it last year and it's going to be $7 billion over 10 years. So, you know, a fairly significant expense. So far, I'm not convinced that Australia as a small to middle power really needs to be meddling in this space and tanking on China and, and Russia yeah, in space. But, yeah. Well, as Australia says it lacks the ability if it had to protect and defend its own satellites, and I'm not, you know, arguing for more money spent on defence, and that without the US, it couldn't actually protect itself. So I don't know, that's, that's the counter-argument. Well, either way, we're going to need the US. That's the thing. 
I guess maybe we need to be seen to be chipping in a little bit and having a little bit of our own forces in space. An Australian government minister has slammed the UN boss for singing out Australia on its climate policy. So here's what the UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres said. A growing number of G20 developed economies have announced meaningful emissions reductions by 2030 with a handful of holdouts such as Australia. So there it is, such as Australia, where a holdout, according to the boss of the UN. It's pretty unusual for him mm. to single out a single country. He called coal a stupid investment and warned countries against sliding back to fossil fuels in response to the global energy shock caused by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And a number of federal MPs have hit back, including the Communications Minister, Paul Fletcher. The chattering classes of the UN can say what they want. The facts are that our emissions are 20% down from 2005. Uh, Better performance than countries like the US, Canada and New Zealand. We've beaten our Kyoto uh, targets. We're very confident we're going to meet our Paris targets. So those facts, as he called them, have been disputed by climate experts saying uh, they involve uh, tricky accounting. What on earth is the chattering class? Like, what is that? Great question. So <laughs> this is what right-wing people say to basically... Discredit. Sort of discredit um, people who are in the media or work directly in politics. It's essentially saying these people are a very small group of people, inner-city elites... And they don't represent, you know, the broader consensus in the general public. Paul Fletcher presumably does. Um, (laughs) But meanwhile, the United Nations is carrying out a monitoring trip of the Great Barrier Reef. It's currently in the middle of another severe bleaching event. Yeah, and that comes as Scott Morrison announces $60 million in a tourism package designed to boost visitors to far north Queensland following the slowdown from the pandemic. Some good news, a cash payout for slow internet speeds. Yeah, Optus and TPG Internet will have to pay $6.5 million in refunds after failing to deliver the maximum speeds advertised on their internet plans. 40,000 customers did not get what they paid for. That is that their NBN service was slower than promised and and they were not notified and couldn't opt out or pay less. And this is in breach of the law. The Australian Communications and Media Authorities, Fiona Cameron there. So legally, telcos must verify maximum internet speeds when they migrate customers to the NBN and also notify them when speeds are not as high as advertised or may not be able to be provided on the available NBN infrastructure. Yeah, so that's cost Optus $4.4 million in refunds which affected 34,000 customers and TPG have had to pay out 2.1 million affecting 4,400 customers. I reckon this would have affected more like 20 million customers because (laughs) we've all had this problem. Mm, This is a good move because ACMA, the communications media authority body, is often seen as a toothless tiger. So it is showing some teeth. I'd imagine those 40,000-odd customers are very happy. But my question is, like, can I get compensated for the amount of time I spend on hold to my internet provider? Because (laughs) I think that's a grievance almost every Australian has. Well, yeah, but I wonder if this payout will pave the way for more payouts, Mm. you know. As the millions of people listening to the briefing right now (laughs) hear about this payout, they'll be like, well, I deserve one as well. My internet's rubbish. I guess we'll keep an eye on that. There's been another explosive day of evidence in the Ben Robert Smith defamation trial with his ex-girlfriend telling the court the veteran punched her in the face in a Canberra hotel room and then told her to lie about the injury to her husband. 
So Robert Smith has denied hitting the woman and this allegation of domestic violence is one of the reasons Robert Smith is suing the nine newspapers and the newspapers are arguing a truth defence, which is why the woman has been called to the stand to give this evidence. So her name has been suppressed by the court. She told the court their affair began in October 2017. After that, they saw each other every 10 days in what the woman said was a fast-moving and all-consuming relationship. And following a function in Canberra in March 2018, the woman said he punched her with his right fist on the left side of her face and eye. And then the next day, she said, Robert Smith asked her if she remembered what happened and, quote, I said no. He said something like, good girl, you hurt yourself when you fell over. All right, Antoinette, we'll catch you again tomorrow. Katrina Blouse is about to join me as we talk psilocybin. All right, Katrina Blouse is back in the briefing studio. Very keen to talk about magic mushrooms. <laughs> you know, I actually am because magic mushrooms, they might hold the key to treating mental health problems. A group of Australians who are made up of psychiatrists, a former federal minister and the former head of the armed forces definitely thinks that this is the case. Yeah, well, we're talking about psilocybin here, not magic mushrooms per se. We're talking about the psychoactive compound found in it, psilocybin, which in overseas trials at well-known universities, part of peer-reviewed research has shown that there are promising results in healing people with mental illnesses who've tried pretty much everything else. So this drug has been decriminalised for use in mental health treatment in Austria, the US state of Oregon and Denver, Colorado. Other countries are looking at it too. In Australia, last December, the TGA rejected a bid to approve it for broad use for mental health treatment. Yeah, so now a group of Australians who call themselves Mind Medicine Australia, with some of those people we mentioned before, are applying again to try and get it across the line with the TGA, uh, this time with tighter controls. Dr. Eli Kotler is a psychiatrist who is part of this group. He is also the medical director of Malvern Private Hospital, which is the first addiction hospital in Australia. Eli, as a psychiatrist, why are you so passionate about psilocybin as a mental health treatment? So I work in uh, addictions. I see people with addictions every day. If there's one thing I know about mental health conditions is that they are complicated. And that's because people are complicated and the mind's complicated and how our mind is related to what we do and our behaviours and, you know, issues like free will. I also know that to help someone with addictions takes a long time. I see people with, you know, pretty severe addictions. Every single person is struggling with some type of trauma that they've had and the emotional difficulties that go with the trauma, sort of the emotional instability and like very, very intense emotions. And unless they work through that stuff, getting a good chance to stop the addiction is really very, very difficult. So as someone that works with people with addictions, I'm just sort of left feeling a little bit helpless sometimes, a little bit hopeless sometimes. I know what these people need to get them better. We really just don't offer treatments these days that can help people do that. And that's why I really got interested in psychedelics because psychedelics seem like the evidence thus far suggests that that's exactly what these medicines do. What essentially happens with these medicines is it can unlock those boxes that we've packed away. And we've all got boxes like that, but some of us have 
bigger boxes with more stuff in it. So what does psilocybin actually do to the brain that that other treatments can't? I mean, you've spoken about being able to access those boxes. Patients in studies in the UK say that it can help them see their lives more clearly. How does it actually work? So probably the best theory we have at the moment is by two people. One's called Carl Friston, who's a professor of neuroscience, and others, um, Robin Carhart-Harris, who people will be familiar with um, if they've been following the sort of progress of psychedelics. It could be put like this, that the way our minds work is basically that we have set ways, and this is every human, we all have very, very set ways which we interpret the world, and the world includes ourselves as an object. So, you know, when we have interactions with people, we will have patterns and routines that are set up in the brain. And so, for example, someone with chronic depression may constantly interpret themselves as being lacking, as being a failure, as being worthless. Someone who's narcissistic will constantly interpret the world as other people are wrong and I'm right. Those are two extreme examples, but we all have these sort of set ways of seeing the world. It's thought that psychedelics such as psilocybin reset the brains. Well, they basically hold those preset assumptions about the world. They remove them whilst someone is on psilocybin. And all of a sudden, we can see things differently, including ourselves and other people, including our past experiences. We can reinterpret things not based on how we've learned to to live in the world, but based more in reality of what I actually am or who this person is, or what actually happened to me. All right, so tell us a little bit about that evidence and the research that has been done so far on the effectiveness of psilocybin. What has it had to say so far? These compounds as they are, are not patentable, which means that drug companies are not interested in them. And usually the way a medicine gets through is that a drug company spends half a billion dollars or a billion dollars. I used to work in Alzheimer's disease and they said that the drug companies funding our trials would spend a billion dollars getting these medicines through. So no one does that for psychedelics at the moment because you can't patent psilocybin because it's from a mushroom. It's from nature. You can't patent MDMA because it's old and out of patents, which means that there's no one funding very large trials of psychedelics. That leaves us in a little bit of a tricky situation and a new situation. And by us, I mean the society we live in, which is that we have these medicines which seem to work very, very well, but we just may never, ever have trials large enough to meet the sort of standards that we've become used to in um, medicine trials. It's very hard to control these medicines with a placebo. So normally in drug trials, you'll give a medicine like a a blood pressure medicine, you'll give it with another pill that looks exactly the same, but it hasn't got any active ingredients in it. And and no one knows, the doctors and and the participants, no one knows which is the active treatment and which is the placebo treatment. And by that way, you can measure the active treatment against the placebo treatment to make sure that the active treatment is better than placebo, which is a very important part of our sort of modern approach to proving that medicines work. That's very, very hard to do with psychedelics because when you take a psychedelic, you have an experience and you can't really make a placebo that gives you that experience. So that's another difficulty inherently that we have with the research on psychedelics. 
Are those challenges with the research part of the reason why you think it hasn't been approved in Australia recently? I mean, last December, the TGA rejected that ongoing call to change the rules and allow psilocybin to be used in medically controlled environments. Is that a huge part of it? And what are you doing in your new application to change the way that you're approaching that to try and satisfy the regulator this should be used? I think there's still some stigma around these medicines. They have the potential to change the way psychiatry is practiced. You know, if if someone came and told me, well, I can be on a medication for the next 17 years for my depression, um, and I have to take that every day and it will have some side effects, you know, potentially decrease my libido, potentially numb my happiness a little bit. Or I could try something like psilocybin or, or MDMA for like three or four sessions you know, potentially work through some of my underlying emotional issues and that will be challenging, but it could be quite freeing in terms of emotionally for me. I know what I would choose and I think potentially a lot of people would choose that. So I think it has the potential also to change the way mental health and psychiatry operate. Eli, how would you like to see psilocybin used in treatment? How would it work? I have someone with treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder from difficult childhood experiences, which continue to impact on their life in a very, very significant way. They've had every single treatment under the sun for many, many years, a number of medications, a number of different therapies, but they're still suffering. And I know that patient, so I know why they're suffering. I know they have parts of themselves that they've packed away in a little box because those parts are still too scary and overwhelming to integrate or get in touch with. You know, to my mind, that's the type of person who these medicines would really help. The treatment would happen uh, in a hospital. It would happen with monitoring equipment. They take the medicine on a particular day and that's after sort of sitting with them and discussing what they really want out of the treatment, what they're aiming for, what they expect. The treatment day happens in hospital but People prefer to have a non-medicalized environment. So sometimes people bring in things that are meaningful to them or sacred to them. Sometimes people listen to music during the session and the session lasts many hours. They're never left alone in the session. There are always two therapists, often a male and a female, sitting with the person throughout their session. People who take psilocybin tend to be quite withdrawn into themselves. People who take MDMA tend to be a little bit more relational within the session, but the session goes for many, many hours. An important aspect of this sounds like the need to work with therapists to unpack this afterwards. You can't just go out on your own, take magic mushrooms and hope to be cured of your depression, right? That's a really important point. So I'm by no way advocating, I guess, what would be called recreational use because it probably is never recreational. But what I'm advocating and what we're advocating for is using it with professionals and as Rick Doblin says, who's one of the people really behind the contemporary push for psychedelics, it's the therapy that heals. It's not the psychedelic. MDMA is a really good example because you can take MDMA illegally at a festival. That's not going to heal you from anything. It's the psychedelic with the therapy. That's why it's called psychedelic assisted therapy. It's still the therapy that heals. That's why this is a new paradigm for for mental health, because traditionally we've had medication and we've had therapy, but this is therapy plus medication. Can you see the status quo changing? And do you think anytime soon this will become a legal treatment? So at the moment we have special access schemes for 
all conditions. All conditions have treatment-resistant patients and then treatments come through that have some evidence but not a full body of evidence. And for those medications, the government has set up special access schemes. And at the moment, the special access scheme for psilocybin and MDMA, there are many psychiatrists, including myself, who have applied to the governments to treat their treatment-resistant patients with these medicines. And the federal government is saying yes, and the state governments are saying no. So that's where we're at at the moment. That was Dr. Eli Kotler, who's a psychiatrist. He's also part of the group Mind Medicine Australia. And Tom, I know that this seems like a fairly out there concept Mm. right now, but do you remember years ago when we started talking about medicinal cannabis and people were really up in arms about that? And now it's kind of an accepted idea. So who knows, maybe this will be in the future as well. Yeah, well, I remember when medicinal cannabis was up for debate, uh, it was really personal stories that brought about a cultural change Mm. there. There was a guy in New South Wales, a young guy we interviewed many times on Triple J, Dan Haslam, and his story really cut through with the Premier at the time, Mike Baird, who came from a culturally conservative background, and that was a big part of the change in New South Wales. And then Greg Hunt took it on board at a federal level, so... It might be those really, really relatable personal stories that break the mould of traditional mm. recreational drug users that really bring people along for, I guess, a change in approach. Tomorrow on The Briefing, everything you need to know about the BA2 sub-Omicron variant. Listener.